Welcome to Max and Murphy here on WBAI Radio, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette here on the 21st day of October 2020. Our next guest joins us now, and that's Jennifer Jones Austin. She's the CEO and executive director of FPWA, an anti-poverty policy and advocacy organization, and she wears other hats as well, which she is going to tell us about. Jennifer, this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thanks so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Good to be with you. Good to be with you both. How are you doing? Oh, actually, uh, Jared had a little bit of a medical um, issue hey. today and, and nothing nothing too serious, but he's not able to join us. So it's just, just you and I. And I'm sorry that I wasn't aware of that. I just got off the call with the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior uh, in uh, at Harvard, uh, a board that is a center that is focused on looking at the neuroscience behind uh, behavior uh, and and law involvement. So, very very timely Interesting. conversation. Mm-hmm. Interesting, and and I'm, and I'm sure that applies to a number of things uh, that you're involved with that we we would like to hear about. Um, first, just tell us tell us a little bit about FPWA and what it's what it's up to, especially amid the devastation of of COVID nineteen. Absolutely. So, FPWA is a nearly one hundred year old organization. Uh, it is an organization that is rooted in the Protestant community. The P and S T W A stands for Protestant. Uh, it's an organization that was created several, uh, many, many years ago, nearly 100 years ago, to sit alongside UGA and Catholic charities at the policymaking table at a time when social services in New York City were doled out based on religious affiliation. Uh, if you were not Catholic or Jewish, uh, identified as Protestant or not, uh, uh, but certainly weren't Jewish or Catholic, but you were uh, uh, farmed out, if you will, to organizations that fell under the Protestant umbrella for everything from child care to uh, child welfare to uh, food supports, housing, etc. So the organization has uh, been uh, in existence for that many years, nearly 100, and over the time has engaged more with secular organizations, nonprofits, uh, than it has with faith-based organizations, so much that today our nearly 170 nonprofit uh, member agencies are mainly uh, organizations that do not have a religious affiliation. And those that do may be Catholic, may be Jewish, uh, uh, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist. Uh, we do not discriminate on the basis of religion. And what we seek to do is connect to the community on issues concerning uh, uh, individuals and families that are challenged uh, economically uh, with respect to health and mental health needs, and even increasingly people who've been engaged uh, with the justice system and are challenged. Mainly our focus is on fighting poverty and all of the issues attendant to poverty that come with poverty, lack of access to quality health and mental health care, Lack of, uh, you know, affordable housing, uh, lack of strong quality education and early childhood education needs being met, uh, justice involvement, and of course, uh, the challenges that come with being poor, low income, low wages, uh, you know, uh, running the risk of losing your benefits, public benefits, and lack of the ability to build wealth in this society. So we do on the ground, 
work with nonprofit organizations, helping to address their needs as their clients are concerned, and that may be providing emergency rental assistance, uh, food supports, uh, you know, uh, trauma-related uh, supports. And then it's also working with government and coming, uh, you know, going to government to affect change in systems policy to address the needs as they are identified on the ground. Mm-hmm. And as the the fight against poverty stands right now, we've obviously seen widespread unemployment due to the shutdowns related to COVID. Um, what are the keys right now in the short term um, that are needed to address the increase in poverty that we've seen? So, um, you know, as you have every reason to understand, appreciate uh, you know, all the all the information is out there in the news, helping us to appreciate that those communities most devastated by COVID-19 uh, are the communities that were already struggling before. Uh, individuals and families who already were experiencing low income because they were working in low wage jobs, and that often translates to uh, Black and Brown communities and immigrant communities. While we're seeing that with COVID-19 that uh, before we began seeing surges around the country, the jobs were coming back, uh, but we knew that the jobs had mainly been lost to, um, you know, uh, in, the, in, in the service areas uh, and um, organizations in retail and hospitality and service, uh, so organizations, jobs in those areas, and they were mainly uh, held by low-income people, black and brown people. So um, what we're seeing is that even if those jobs came back, they didn't come back at the same level uh, because we haven't reopened in New York City uh, in our entertainment industry. People aren't coming in droves for tourism. So the jobs haven't come back. Those communities continue to struggle. They continue to suffer. We continue to see that uh, food, uh, food insecurity is a very big issue. We continue to see that people are having problems meeting their uh, financial needs with respect to rent and in some instances mortgages, but on the lesser side with that because many uh, low-income persons, if they had uh, mortgages, many of them lost them during the Great Recession and we never really saw a full recovery there. So we mm-hmm. continue to see problems with respect to uh, rent, uh, getting, you know, paying your, uh, your utilities, paying for food supports, and increasingly we are growing concerned about uh, the education needs, uh, a growing achievement gap for black and brown children, uh, especially children who come from families that do not have the resources to create, quote, learning pods uh, where they can hire teachers who will come in and work with their children one-on-one or maybe as many as three or four children sitting with one teacher, that the low-income families don't have that. And so the uh, education divide uh, the achievement gap is growing wider and wider, and it's not just a technology issue. We're also seeing that um, people are presenting, as one would expect, many of us are presenting with mental health challenges, depression, growing further and for, further disengaged and disconnected. Uh, and we see that a lot in children and with elderly persons and then with essential uh, low-income workers who have to get out there day by day and run the risk of being uh, infected with COVID and bringing it home to their family, uh, their families. So we are focusing on food supports. We're focusing on rental assistance, but we're also focusing on the building mental health needs, the trauma issues, education supports for children, young and old, and then also, you know, how do we address um, some of the other issues? 
that are uh, bubbling up, like the elderly, uh, you know, being isolated, being disengaged. How do we help them? Mm. And um, are you getting the the response uh, that's needed from the New York City government and the New York State government? You know, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Uh, we all uh, have heard about how the city uh, has been uh, financially impacted by COVID-19. Uh, they, mm. uh, the, the city leadership is anticipating that over the, uh, the next two fiscal years, we will see a $9 billion deficit. Uh, Governor Cuomo is anticipating a $19 billion deficit uh, without federal economic stimulus money uh, directly flowing to New York City. We're going to have a problem because that $9 billion deficit comes from the loss of city tax levy uh, dollars, tax levy dollars that, you know, that we get from uh, having a great uh, tourism industry uh, from retail. If uh, from from the restaurant business, if those tax dollars aren't coming in, then the tax levy, the city tax, uh, the city tax dollars go down, the budget goes down, and what is cut? What is cut? Those non-mandated services. Right. A lot of the you know additional food insecurity, a lot of the after-school service supports, um, things of that nature, and so it's a struggle. It's a struggle for nonprofits right now, and it's a struggle for organizations like ours to help raise awareness about the importance of not cutting these programs, uh, harming the people who've already been so greatly harmed by COVID. Um, mm. You know, we get some traction, traction, but it's always a push-pull. Right. Um, and and that sort of uh, is a bit of a, a segue into one of the new roles that you've taken on, which is part of this reimagining of the police department and policing and public mm-hmm. safety in New York City. Uh, you, you were announced by uh, Police Commissioner Dermot Shea and the mayor as, uh, as being among the leaders of this new effort. When you go into these community discussions and internal discussions about police reform, public safety reform, are there core principles that you come in with? Are there guiding lines that, that you bring to it in terms of your philosophy about this? Absolutely. First and foremost, that... Uh, this needs to be a sincere, earnest, and honest process. That uh, this is this cannot be a process where it's a uh, let's go hear what the community says. Oh yeah, 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 we do that. We do this. We check that box. Um, it's just that they don't know that we've done this. This is not what this process can or should be about. This needs to be a uh, sincere process where the NYPD is hearing the community hearing and listening to the community about the concerns they have about um, safety and fairness and justice in policing in New York City. So first and foremost, I go in with uh, this this has to be an honest and sincere process. The second thing uh, related to what I just said, that this has to be about real listening, Uh, not just hearing, not just checking the box, but really listening and uh, and then crosswalking what is being said with existing policies and practices and with, uh, you know, the potential for real reform. And then thirdly, for me, uh, mm-hmm. what is most important is that there is reflective analysis, self-critique being done in the NYPD when they are hearing, when they're listening to what the community is saying, that they don't automatically run 
uh, over to look at the, you know, the policies that are in place or policies that may be promulgated, but that they do a serious um, critique of what they're doing, how they're showing up in relation to what they are hearing, in relation to what the community is saying. And then fourthly, uh, it's important to me that, um, that, that rank and file, as well as the highest levels of leadership in the NYPD, are um, actively engaged in the reform process, in the policy, uh, in the policy making, in, and in the build out. And then the last thing I'll say is that I fervently believe that we need to be doing policing reform, but we cannot, we cannot, we will do ourselves the greatest disservice if we as a city, and I'll go even farther to say, if we as a society stop the just policing reform. So I'm also looking at how the NYPD is understanding and appreciating how it intersects with other systems, with health and mental health, with education, uh, with housing, um, you know, with, with neighborhood and community development, with jobs and wages, uh, all mm-hmm. of those issues, how they are triggers for, you know, the stressors that often bring about, uh, you know, police uh, involvement. You know, we know very well that there is a great intersection of race, poverty, and justice involvement here in New York City and across America. And we know that poverty is a very big, you know, a big contributor that not only to the people who are um, over-policed and incarcerated, but also as a contributor to certain crimes. And so we need to look at all of those issues if we're really going to reform, reinvent, and reimagine something. And so are you, are you coming into this? And again, this is just, you know, your, your personal perspective, not asking you to, you know, make any declarations on behalf of the overall uh, sort of effort that just got started. But um, are you someone that comes in thinking there are certain responsibilities that currently have been falling given to the NYPD, but really should not be under that uh, umbrella? You know, there are people calling for the NYPD to be, to be removed from mm-hmm. from most responses to mental health crises, for example, um, you know, they, they started the process in the budget agreement in the city budget agreement of removing the NYPD from school safety, returning that to the Department of Education. Are there things like that that you believe in at the start of this process? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Shortly after the killing of George Floyd, uh, right in, you know, right in the midst of COVID, I took a walk in Prospect Park. Uh, it was the Monday following the uh, first demonstrations held here in New York City. Now, I remember walking through Prospect Park, just, you know, trying to get out in the middle of the day, uh, you know, masked up, walking through the park, and all of a sudden, uh, police, co- uh, police cars come out of nowhere. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that I counted 11 police officers who were called by someone because there was a young black man walking in the park uh, he appeared to have some mental health challenges. He was, you know, he was shouting at the top of his voice. Uh, he was, you know, um, spitting. And, you know, they jumped out of the cars and they surrounded him. Uh, many of us stopped to see what was going on. It was clear that he was, he was, he was having some type of challenge, mental health challenge. The situation escalated so quickly 
because while he was challenged, he was very much aware that there were now, like it was like a sea of blue who was staring him down in the face. And what did that do? That only exacerbated the situation. Ultimately, mm. someone from their like their like mental health squad showed up, but it was too late. The situation was already out of control. So yes, I believe that when it comes to engaging with young people in schools, when it comes to mental health, when it comes to homelessness, and there are other areas, just you know, like walking the beat. Maybe we need to think about you know what community policing looks like, and it doesn't need to be the police officer you know who's strapped. There are many different areas that we can and should explore that would help to de-escalate these situations and create a greater sense of collaboration and partnership and really help and people get the supports they need. And and you have confidence that Police Commissioner Dermot Shea is, is someone open to, you know, some of the sort of more sweeping reforms that, that people are calling for? I don't know where what you just said would fall in terms of sweeping or not, but, you know, significant reforms. Do you have confidence that he's he's open to those discussions? I have confidence based on my conversations with Commissioner Shea that he understands the intersectionality of many of the issues about which we just spoke and that he sees that there is um, a role that other um, organizations, agencies, city agencies, government entities should play. Uh, in helping to address some of the issues that attend communities that are beset with, um, you know, with, with poverty, um, educational, uh, you know, um, uh, needs, uh, you know, like, you know, uh, health challenges, all of that. I see that. I have confidence that Commissioner Shea understands that this reform uh, needs to happen. I have confidence that he is earnestly engaging, uh, you know, but I, you know, I also understand and appreciate that we've been down this road before uh, and that it's going to take um, more than a a sincerity of heart and that we've all got to, uh, at this moment, you know, put forth the best effort possible. And I believe that the NYPD uh, wants to do that. I think that they need to be helped by the community, uh, by leaders, uh, people with lived experience, by uh, community leaders, uh, be they uh, activists and advocates. Uh, be they uh, other elected officials, they need to be helped. That's part of the role that I'm playing. So I believe that mm. I'm confident that there's a desire. Um, but I think that, you know, like everybody being held accountable is going to require that we don't just leave it at the desire. And uh, did the mayor have to have to twist your arm to, to get into this uh, this new effort? Or were, were you were you ready I'm to jump in? I'm going to tell you that uh, as far as I'm aware, the mayor had nothing to do with this, as far as I'm aware at the outset. Um, Uh And nobody had to twist my arm. And let me tell you why nobody had to twist my arm. This is one of these these initiatives, endeavors, um, you know, engagements where I'm already catching hell. You know, do I know enough about policing in New York City? Uh, You know, do, do I deal on a daily basis with uh, persons who have lived experience. And I'm going to tell you, no, I don't know all I need to know about, uh, you know, about policing policy. And no, I don't deal every single day with people who have had really devastating traumatic experiences with police officers. No, I don't. What I do have 
is a sincere commitment to working on issues of inequity and injustice, and it's been demonstrated time and time again. What people do know about me is that I take no prisoners. I'm focused on really making change. And so um, I stepped up to the plate because it's one of those, you know, if you're called to serve and you believe that you can do something to impact, uh, you know, these systems, then you better step up and you better do your part. And as you do your part, you better bring along with you the people who maybe know a little bit more than you do and just bring your skill set to the table to achieve what you believe is possible. That's why I'm and, here. No arm twisting. <laughs> Understood. And we're just in our last two minutes here, but I wanted to check in with you about two other things. There are still more things that you're uh, leading on and involved with. Um, and we're in our last couple minutes here with Jennifer Jones Austin. Uh, and thank you for the time. You... Uh, were appointed by the mayor and accepted to be the chair of the board of correction. Um, the, there was an announcement earlier this year that there was a work group uh, being formed to come up with a plan to end punitive segregation, otherwise known as solitary confinement, uh, that was supposed to move forward in the fall. So what's the status of that effort? So this feels a little bit about break, like breaking, breaking news because we are very, very close. Uh, we put the working group together uh, because we wanted to make sure that we had the input of not just the Department of Correction uh, and not just the Board of Correction uh, and, and uh, our representative is Vice Chair Stanley Richards. We also wanted to have the input of the um, the officers uh, who are on a daily basis working in Rikers and the other jails around the city of New York. So we asked that uh, the um, president of uh, COBA, the Correction Officers Benevolent Association, be part of the working group. And then also we wanted to hear from persons with lived experience. And so we asked Deanna Hoskins of Just, uh, Just Leadership to be a part of the conversation in the working group as well. The working group is very close to completion of uh, the plan to end solitary confinement. And uh, it's my understanding that literally in the next several days, they will be presenting the plan to the city of New York and to the board of correction. And then we are going to go into public comment. Uh, the, the rule will be, uh, will incorporate into the rule. It'll be certified. We'll bring it to the public for comment. And then we will have a vote on the rule probably sometime in, uh, hopefully in the next four to six weeks. That's the game. Uh -huh. right well, good, good timing there. And, and did you get um, COBA to participate in that? So um, I will tell you that, you know, one of the challenges that, and, and this is a legitimate challenge, uh, COBA changed leadership uh, right mm -hmm. when we went into this process. Uh, they elected, COBA elected a new president, and uh, Benny Basio uh, has had uh, many things on his plate, and this is one of the first things that he was confronted with. He has brought his concerns to the table. He, uh, he and his representatives have been at the table engaging with us. You know, one of the challenges that presents for uh, the, um, you know, for, for the correction officers is, um, you know, they, they're, they're, they are concerned about their safety. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is figure out how to uh, balance the safety of correction officers while not doing harm to detained persons. And mm -hmm. uh, it is, it has been proven time and time again that punitive segregation is harmful. It is debilitating. Uh, it is like, you know, um, not just a debilitating for the time that one is in solitary confinement, but it can have lifelong consequences. So we're trying to hold two truths. 
You need to make sure okay. that correction officers are safe and that detained persons are safe too. Mm-hmm. Well, we will be looking forward to the release of that plan. And uh, I'm glad we had this conversation about other matters, but also got to touch on that. And we'll, we'll certainly be looking uh, for that and to talk with you more in the future about all of this and, and more. Uh, Jennifer Jones-Austin of FWA, thank you for the time. Thanks for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Be well. And that is going to do it for this week's Max and Murphy. Thank you for tuning in, and we will talk to you next week. Don't forget to vote.